0: You are listening to the Tom Eliff podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now here is Tom Eliff. I ask if you will please to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. And of course, if you are visiting with us here this evening, I need to tell you, that for the past several weeks, and on into the next several weeks, we are studying one of the most remarkable books in all of the New Testament. That is the book of Galatians. Now, it is remarkable for several reasons, but there is one in particular to which uh, uh, I want to direct your attention this evening, and that is that the letter of Galatians is a letter to several churches as opposed to a letter to a specific church. We have Paul's letter to the Romans and we have the uh, letter to the Ephesian Christians, the Christians in Ephesus. And we have two letters to the Christians in Corinth and so on. But now in Galatians, we have a letter that is written to several churches in the region of Galatia. The Churches in Galatia had a particular problem. It was not unique to them, but it was pronounced in these churches. And that was that they had a tendency toward legalism, a return to the bondage of the law. And most specifically, they had a tremendous emphasis on the fact that unless you kept the law, there would be no way for you to be declared righteous as a believer in Christ. In fact, they even went so far as to say that in order to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. And they were very keen on this, so much so that uh, the Apostle Paul had to write them a letter in which he sternly rebuked them. And you'll remember in the first chapter of Galatian, he said, I am amazed that you have so soon fallen away from the faith that I delivered unto you. And so that is the issue in the churches of Galatia. We're thinking together in this series about our freedom in Christ, how to employ and enjoy our freedom in Christ. What I'd like for you to see this evening is that there are many things that we have in common with everyone. Now, that may seem like a very simple truth to you, but there is another side to that coin. Most of us, by our very nature, tend to distinguish ourselves from others. And sometimes there is bred a certain kind of haughtiness, an arrogance, a disdain for people who do not practice their faith the way we practice our faith, for people who do not live their lives the way we live our lives. Now, let me give you an example. I have a friend who some time ago... began to pray that the Lord would deliver him from a habit which had enslaved him for many, many years. A- as a matter of fact, uh, the physicians had told him that this habit would probably ultimately take his life, and there was so much evidence, uh, scientific evidence, that would corroborate this, why, th- there was just no question about it. And so, with the encouragement of his physician, who had given him a not-so-good report, and with the encouragement of his family who couldn't stand his stinking habit anyway, and with the encouragement of some friends who had also made it through and were enjoying the fact that they had gained the victory, my friend decided that he was going to buckle down and for once in his life, he was going to overcome this habit. He was going to conquer. He was going to win. Uh, We prayed for him and he prayed. And uh, sure enough, After a period of time, a real wrestling match, he really did get the victory. That was amazing. I mean, he said, you know, all these years I've wrestled with this habit and I'm so grateful to the Lord for giving me victory over this habit. But now I watched something take place in this man's life. I watched him as he began to have an absolute intolerance of anyone else who was caught in that habit. He would see them and he'd say, I can't believe that. How could they be so immature? Well, how in the world could a person, if they call themselves true believers, they ought not to do that, he'd say. And so finally I said to him, how long have you been calling yourself a believer in Christ? And he went back to his childhood when he received Christ as his Savior. And I said, now, how long was it in your Christian pilgrimage before you gained victory over that particular habit? And he allowed us how it was almost 30 years. And I said, isn't it interesting that now that you have gained the victory in a certain area, you have become so critical, so judgmental of other people who are ensnared with that habit to the extent that you say you don't see how they can really be believers in Christ and have a problem with that. He said, well, Brother Tom, he said, that's just the way I feel. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you reckon that any of those people who are still ensnared with that habit Have one in an area where I happen to know you are still struggling? He said, probably so. I said, does that mean that you're not a Christian? And they are. And the lights begin to turn on in this man's brain. I was not saying that I condoned any habit which was as enslaving as that man's former habit and the habit of his friends uh, of whom he was so critical. I was not condoning that. The Lord couldn't condone that. As a matter of fact, I do believe that people who are genuinely saved will come under heavy conviction of the Holy Spirit who will begin to confront them and challenge them and show them how they can win over any area of their life where there is some sin which has ensnared them. But what I was wanting, my friend, to see is that we move so easily to begin... Judging other people who happen to be wrestling in their experience with something we may have been wrestling with only a few months earlier, only a few years earlier, or maybe God in His grace and His mercy delivered us from ever having to wrestle with that. Does that mean that you suddenly would consider the fact that you have earned your salvation because you're so much better than them? Now, the Apostle Paul is pointing out to the Christians in Galatia that there are many things that we have in common. And he was doing this because, you see, they were making a big difference between those who were Jews and those who were Gentiles. Now, you remember the Jews are and were then a chosen people of God. They were descendants of Abraham by virtue of his relationship with his wife Sarah. They were people who had received the principles and the promises of God. They were most blessed of all the people upon the earth because they were people with whom God had entered into a covenant relationship and to whom he had delivered his holy word. That part of the Bible which you call the Old Testament. These were the Jews. Now they would tell you on occasion that being God's chosen people was not the easiest thing in the world because as a part of that responsibility, they often came under the hand of discipline from God. But indeed, the Jews were most blessed because they had a grasp of who God was, a grasp of who the Messiah would one day be, a grasp of the fact that God had certain principles but that man also had a sin nature which caused him constantly to run headlong into those principles with calamitous results. They had a grasp of that that no one else in the world seemed to have. Now that the Messiah had come, those Jewish Christians began to think, well, who could know about Christ like we? And so they began to insist that as others came to know Jesus, such as the Samaritans, or Samaritans, or the Gentiles, they begin to say, well, if they really want to be dedicated, they ought to be like us. They ought to eat like us. They ought to dress like us. They ought to worship like us. They ought to appreciate the Scripture as we appreciate the Scripture if they truly want to be right with God. Now, I'd like to see the white of your eyes on these on, for these next few moments because I'm going to make the statement to you. Every one of us, in this building this evening is at a different place in our spiritual pilgrimage than everybody else. Each one of us is. Each one of us ought to be thankful for how God has led us along, thankful for His grace if we are believers in Christ because it is by His grace that He saved us. We ought to encourage our brothers and sisters in the Word. We ought to build them up in the most holy faith. But one thing we must not do, we must not put other people into a man-made bondage by which we say, unless you practice it like I practice it, you are wrong. You know, there are differences in the ways that churches worship. While there are churches, some that worship with the crash of the cymbal and with the drum and with the shout of praises and with the hallelujah and the hand clap, and there are other people who gathered this morning and they sat in their churches and with stolid faces they sang, The Lord is in His holy temple, and scarcely smiled. Who was right? Or is it possible that there's as much wrong with either? Or is it possible that the great differences between those two worship services is not so much theological as it is geographical? One happens to be on one side of the tracks, maybe in the other on the other side of the tracks. Or cultural. One happens to be in one part of the world and another happens to be in another part of the world. So who is to say, You must do it my way or you're not doing it the right way. Now, what the Apostle Paul is wanting to do in this letter to the Christians of Galatia is to point out to them that to come to Christ, we all must come the same way. And so in two verses, which I want to read to you in just a few moments, he points out the things we all have in common. So with your Bible open to Galatians chapter 2, let's stand together and let me read to you, beginning with verse 15. I want to read just two verses, verses 15 and 16. Now Paul, who, let me remind you, was a Jew's Jew. He made no bones about the fact that he met all the criteria and was more zealous in his faith than most anybody he had ever met as a Jew. He was a Jew by birth of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, now, we who are Jews by nature, that is, we are born into Judaism. We have Jewish families. We grow up in the Jewish religion. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now, I need to explain that to you. He's not saying that the Jews were not sinners. In fact, that's what he's going to point out in a few moments that they are. But you've got to remember that Jews looked upon Gentiles as sinners, and Jews as the children of God. Jews looked upon Gentiles as dogs and swine, and themselves as the righteous people of God. And so the Apostle Paul adopts that language, and he says, now listen, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, to use your terminology, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Now, listen to this last part of verse 16. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Father in heaven... I pray you'd open our eyes to the truths of your word in these next few moments, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you keep your Bible open to Galatians chapter 2 as we think about those things we all have in common with each other? And I'm going to ask you not only to write these down in the margin of your Bible, or maybe if you've got a notebook, but ask God to write these across your heart so that when you see any person, if that person seems to lift himself up, you can, in your mind, you can say, now, wait a minute, I know I have some things in common with that person and he or she with me. Or if that person begins to tear themselves down, you can say, wait a minute, I can identify with you because you and I have some things in common. And it's that common ground that will be the basis of our meeting together. And so let's look at the things we hold in common. First of all, every one of us here this evening is born with a common condition. That's the first thing I want to say. Every person here is born with a common condition. Now, what is that common condition? It is that we are born with a sin nature. Now, dear friends, let me tell you something. Sin is not something that you learn. Sin is within you. You may learn by looking around how to practice sin, but sin is within you. You don't have to learn it. Anyone who has ever been around little newborn children for very long and watched them as they grow up will realize that children themselves have a sin nature. I mean, they will start doing things you didn't teach them to do. They'll be possessive. They'll be demanding. They can be selfish. And you see, there are some people who believe that if we just had a perfect society... Where we really trained our children properly, and, and, and there is so much baloney out there about how to change how to train children properly. I cannot believe some of the things I've heard and read over the years you know that are in total have hold the Bible in total disdain and by the way, this is your only hope if you've got kids you know and uh, <clears throat> What what people believe is if we just had a good society and we and we did a better job as parents, our children wouldn't sin. Guess what? Our children don't have to sin to become sinners. It's born in them. And if you're the parents, you put it there. Because Adam put it in the human race. In Adam, we all die. We all have a sin nature. You don't have to commit sins to become a sinner. You commit sins because you are a sinner. Now, the sin nature within you reveals itself in many different ways as you develop and as you grow up and mature. Uh, Your sin list, the category of your sins, may change. But you see, the Bible says that all of us have sinned, all of us come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in these two verses is the fact that somehow every man will either be justified before God or he's going to spend his forever separated from God in a place called hell. And so Paul is struggling with the fact that all of us are sinners. And he says, you know, those of us who are Jews by our very nature... We may not call ourselves sinners like the Gentiles, but if we're going to be justified, we're going to have to come to God the same way the Gentiles come to God because we are sinners just as they are sinners. I I get so amused at some of the uh, programs which our government, for instance, would bring into our... uh, uh, society, And they say, you know, that if we'll spend enough money on this thing, we'll make everybody sinless. Money is not the answer, friends. I want to tell you something. A sinner in the slums will be a sinner in the high rise if his heart doesn't change. You say, Brother Tom, aren't you for caring and loving and identifying with people and helping? Absolutely. Of course I am. I have spent the better part of my life trying to encourage and giving and supporting and training and encouraging people to to be lifted up out of an environment which might be oppressive to them. But I want to tell you something, friend. You can give all the food you want to. You can pass out all the clothes you want to. You can change the environment all you want to. But if you don't have a heart change, you have only improved that person's existence for a few years at the most. When it's all over, they're going to burn in hell. The only hope for that person is justification, that God would justify them. Now, you need to understand what justification is. Justification is a sovereign act of God by which He declares someone who is guilty of sin as being justified, the sin being paid for, and therefore they are reconciled or right with God. They are justified. Someone said you can remember it this way. It, when you are justified by Jesus, it is, you can say it is just as if I never sinned. God declares you His child. God declares you forgiven. He declares your sin paid for. That is so very, very important to understand that we have a common condition. I want you to look at the person next to you, and I want you to say this. You are a sinner just like me. Now, you thought I was going to say, I'm a sinner just like you. I want you to say, you are a sinner just like me. Say that, or just like I am, or however, whatever is best English, just say it. Now, for those of you who are saying, that's no surprise to me, just just say that. You're a sinner just like me, just like I am. You're a sinner. That's one thing we all have in common. You and I have that in common. You have that in common with everybody who ever walked the face of the earth, save the Lord Jesus. It is our common condition. Do you know why one of these days there's going to be a 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth that we call the millennium? I think there is one major reason that we're going to have a millennial reign, a 1,000-year reign of Christ. I believe it is because there will still be some people on the face of this earth who will say, well, if we could just have a perfect society and the right kind of government and the right kind of behavior on the part of people, why, there will be no sin. You know, these are the people that live on the hypothetical desert island with the hypothetical baby dropping out of the hypothetical airplane and growing up hypothetically with no sin. They say, well, there'd just be no sin if he could just fall into a perfect society. So you know what's going to happen? After that great battle at the Valley of Armageddon, after that great battle when Satan is judged and cast in the pit, he's only cast there, the Bible says in Revelation, for 1,000 years, Christ will sit on a throne in Jerusalem and we will have a perfect society on this earth for 1,000 years. But you know what? There will be sinners and sin on this earth. For at the end of that 1,000 years when Satan is loose, the Bible says he will gather a great army of people whose hearts are unchanged. They are still unbent, unbowed before God, and they will still mount a great war against Jerusalem. They will prove the fact that given the most perfect society you could ever imagine for a 1,000 years, reformation is not the same as regeneration. Now, that will be proved at the end of the millennium that man cannot reform his way into heaven because man has a sin nature. That's the last great question I think that will be answered by the Lord on this earth by the millennium. The great question is this. Would man in a better society be a better man? And the answer is no, because he is a sinner in his heart. We have a common condition. We're all sinners. Now, the thing about it is, you see, there are some people who who are all bent out of shape over how much they've sinned, They think some people are big sinners and some people are little sinners, and they're always the little sinner. You know, well, you know, I I do a few things wrong, but I don't do a lot of things wrong. You know, those those are the really wicked people. I mean, they're the ones that are responsible for the mess that this world is in, these really wicked people. Did you know something? As far as God is concerned, you are as wicked as Judas or Adolf Hitler... You are as wicked as Edi Amin or as Saddam Hussein. You stand no more chance than they apart from the justification of Christ of spending a forever in heaven instead of hell. Because the Bible says we're all sinners. It doesn't make a difference whether you miss heaven by a split second or by a million years, by half an inch or by 10 miles. If you miss it, you miss it. And all of us have sinned and all of us have come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. Well, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? You say you mean I would be spending my forever in hell with a Saddam Hussein or, or with a, a person like Adolf Hitler or somebody like that? Do you really mean that? That's what the Bible says. You're not dealing with Tom Elliff on that. You're dealing with the Scripture. For everyone who rejects Jesus will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone forever that's where the devil is he's not king of hell hell is first and foremost a place of punishment for him you will spend your forever there because apart from christ you see there's no other way that's our common condition now that brings me to a second thing that we hold in common with each other so we none of us going to brag about uh anybody but jesus tonight when this is over because we have a common condition we must reach a common conclusion What is that common conclusion? Sinful man cannot justify himself by any of his works. Look with me, if you will, please, at verse 16, the first part, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Look at the very last part of that verse, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now look up here for a moment. What was happening down there in the city, in in Galatia, in the region of Galatia, in those churches was that these people who had trusted in Jesus to save them, repented of their sins and turned to Christ, these people were now coming back and they were placing, listen to this, greater value in keeping the law than in trusting Christ. Now, let me just tell you, we, we really, down inside our hearts, when a person is born again, they have a new appreciation for the Scripture. And sometimes a person who's lived a wicked life and they receive Christ by faith as Savior and they start saying, uh, well, let me give you an example. I talked uh, some years ago with a young couple who had a, a little child who's about, oh, four or five years of age. And the problem was they were just hard on that child. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of hard that a parent ought to be. You're not going the Bible says that you're not going to kill your child when you discipline them, if you discipline them right, and the Bible even tells you how to do that and that you ought to do it as often as it's needed. You ought to be consistent. You ought to be effective. There are right ways of discipline. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the fact that they were raising in their home a zombie. I mean, this child was afraid of his shadow. This child, it was obvious, this child was not enjoying life. And so I I asked these parents, I said, in fact, I thought there was something really either emotionally or physically or mentally wrong with the child. Because the child just didn't function. Just, I mean, this child would just come in and just, you know, totally unlike a, a just whipped down, just beat down. And so I took an occasion to talk with parents, and uh, we were we were sitting in their home, and uh, the child had been told to go outside and stay out there, and it was just outside. You could just see him outside. He was just out there staying. And we began to visit about this, and I, I said. You know, uh, tell me, you know, is there a problem here and so forth? And I said, you know, it just seems like your child just obviously doesn't give you any problem. And they said, no, not our son. And I said, but but is he really enjoying life and everything? And they began to say something like this They said, you know, we were so rebellious and we were so terrible as we were growing up. And it was only later in life that that we found Jesus as our Savior. And we had so many problems. We are determined that our child is not going to have any of those problems. And they lived their life just trying to ensure that their child had no problem. That was on their mind. I mean, they, they lived a life of fear, really. They were not enjoying their relationship with their child. In fact, they were burdened down with that child because they saw that child as a potential rebel. That Well, of course, the Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it out. You know what they were doing? They were trying to do with a five-year-old what some Christian adults try to do with each other. We're going to establish these principles. We're going to establish these perimeters. We're going to set this up, and we're going to keep you out of problem, and you're going to be so good and so right and so obedient, you're not even going to need saving by the blood of Jesus because you're going to be well-nigh perfect. Uh Uh-uh. No, you're not. You can raise a child and you may never see one sin that that child ever commits, but that child is a sinner. And you are not going to be able to impose enough laws on that child to make that child righteous before God. You say, Brother Tom, shouldn't I teach my child principle? Oh, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Principle, yes. The immutable principles of God, yes. But you know what the Jews had done? that the Jews had taken the law and then they had even compounded the law into the Talmud and they had law on top of law, so much so that they said, you can walk this far on the Sabbath day, you can't walk any farther, you'll be doing work, put your bags down or carry your bags out there the next day, then walk out to where your bags are, pick them up, carry them to the house, that's not work. You, if you have cotton in your ears on... Uh, the Sabbath day, and it falls out. You can put it in. That's not work, but you can't put it in if you hadn't already put it in on the Sabbath. That's in the Talmud. Just multiply law upon law upon law upon law. So much so they thought every time a person began to rebel in an area, here's a bar, here's a bar, here's a bar, here's a bar. You are in a jail. You have returned to bondage. Now, they were doing that with one another you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you'll always do this, you'll always be there, you'll always take this, you'll always have this, here's when you get up, here's when you go to bed, here's what you ought to read, here's how you ought to read, here's what you ought to attend, here's what you ought to, you know. And that's what they were doing. Now, let me just tell you, the Apostle Paul is saying, you are all sinners, you've got that in common. Secondly... Nobody here, you, you must reach this common conclusion, nobody here is going to be good enough to get to God by your works. Forget it. He says, forget it. It will not happen. He says, there is not a Jew in Galatia that's going to be good enough to get to heaven by his works. There's not a Jew in Jerusalem, not Peter himself, is going to get to heaven by his works. You say, well, Brother Tom, did God make a mistake in the law? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The laws of God are wonderful. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus said, A man who taught others to break the law and broke it himself was such a great offender, it would be better for him that a millstone be tied around his neck and he'd be thrown into the sea. Jesus, as a matter of fact, said, Until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle, not the smallest of inscriptions in the Hebrew language, not the smallest in that alphabet are going to change. You say, well, preacher, you're talking about the law like the law is a bad thing. No. You see, the purpose of the law, there are several purposes of the law. One of the purposes of the law is to show you how futile it is to believe that you can keep them all. Does that make the law wrong? No, it just makes us, with our sin nature, helpless to get to heaven by the law. That's one of the purposes of the law. It is a tutor to show us our sin, the Scripture says. Is the law wrong? No, the law is not wrong. It shows us our sinfulness. It's like a mirror which shows us our sinfulness. But let me tell you something. A mirror can show you that you're dirty, but it can't clean you up. Now, I wouldn't want any of you all to become what uh, scholars call antinomian, which means I'm against the law. I'll throw out the law. The law has no purpose. The laws of the Bible are wonderful. Now, you need to understand what kind of law you're reading. Are you reading laws which are principles of God, like the Ten Commandments? are you reading laws which relate to temple worship, which relate to their temple worship? are you reading dietary? You say, well, are these bad laws? No, they're all good. But they relate to specific times. They can relate to you. There's much there to relate to you because God's not going to give them a law that would be wrong for them or unhealthy for us. But what what I want you to see is this, friends. Nobody is going to make it that way. So why, now that you are saved, why start imposing your interpretation of the laws on other people? That's what Paul is saying. You're not going to make it that way? Why resurrect it and try to make people live like you live since you can't get to heaven that way either? As a matter of fact, he says, because you're a sinner, the truth is the harder that you try, the worse it's going to be. It's like a man in quicksand. The more you kick, the deeper you sink. The more you thrash about trying to behave so good that you're going to impress God, the dirtier you're going to get. You will never be so good that God says, well, bless your heart, you're so good you ought to come to heaven. We have a common condition. We must reach this common conclusion. None of us are going to get there by our effort. Now, folks, let me tell you something. If this message does anything for anybody here this evening, I hope it fills your heart with gratitude for Jesus. Because you see, apart from Jesus, nobody here gets there. Not apart from Jesus and your effort. No, your effort has nothing to do with it. As long as you believe your effort has something to do with it, you will not make it because you're you're denying the sufficiency of Christ. And so we reach this final statement, and that is that we all come to him by common conversion. Look again at verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we, he says, even the most devoted Jews... We have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. What is this common conversion? We all must trust in Jesus. And if anybody here is a Christian, you're a Christian because you put aside the idea, the very thought that you could ever make it on your own And you just repent of your sin and trust it in Jesus. And the reason that a lot of you here are struggling with the issue of whether you're even saved at all is because in your mind you still think there's some things you can do to make you a Christian other than simply receive Christ as your Savior. And you're trying to line up all the spiritual dominoes. Make sure you read right, pray right, do right, live right. And when you don't have to do one of those, you go into a terrible despair. Oh, God must not love me. When you do them all, you feel good for a few weeks and you are on a spiritual roller coaster. Dear friend, what you need to do is to get saved. What you need to do is to realize the sufficiency of Christ and to repent of trying to impress God with your good works and let God come in and impress you with how he can change your nature, write the law on your heart so that with your new nature you will desire to keep the law as you keep your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was uh, in college, we had a lunch line. And you had to have a meal ticket to go through the lunch line. And there were signs all up and down the the cafeteria line that says you cannot come through if you do not have your meal ticket with you. My meal ticket number, if I'm not mistaken, was number 307. In fact, I'm sure that's what it was, 307. I remember a meal ticket number, friend. I'll just tell you that. And uh, my wife and I were courting back in those days. This was the spring semester before we were married. And um, my brain, you know, was was in neutral most of the time. I was in la-la land. Now, I'll just have to confess to you I was on another planet while we were we were recording. I just you know it was the most wonderful thing in all the world. And uh, I mean she she was sort of there too. I remember the first ball game we ever went to, you know, she was wearing a coat still had the price tags hanging out underneath it, you know and we were just I mean we were just out of it. I was just as bad. I you know I was smitten. And <clears throat> I would I forgot everything. I mean I I you know forgot books, I forgot Times I forgot everything. I just lived on another planet. And, but one thing at, our, at, at, at school, you, you couldn't forget your meal ticket if you wanted to eat. I mean, that was just it. I mean, you could forget other stuff. But the lady, and by the way, she is a wonderful lady, and she, is, she and her husband are missionaries. They're friends of mine. They're missionaries in South Africa, uh, South America now. Uh, and she reminded me of this, the reason I happened to think about it. Uh, late in the spring, I mean, it's like school is almost out. I picked up Jeannie there at the dormitory and I said, let's go eat. So we went over there and it occurred to me that I had forgotten my meal ticket. And But I thought, I know the number. I know she knows the number because before I even get up there, she sees me and she circles 307. I know that is a fact. So I got up there and uh, smiled at her and she smiled at me and I started to go through. She said, Tom, where's your meal ticket? And I said, I forgot. It, but you know what it is, 307. She said, see that sign back there? got to have your meal ticket in your hand I said but you know that I have a meal ticket she said I know you got one but you don't have one with you you're gonna have to go get it I said but that's all the way she said you want to eat I said it's the most ridiculous thing that I've ever this is so legalistic <laughs> but you know what she was right there were all kinds of signs that said you know if you don't have your ticket you don't eat and I ended up watching my wife eat because I didn't want to take time to be away from her. You know, I wanted to just go through the line. I nibbled a little bit of her food there uh, at the table. But the, the point was, I mean, that guy was just a stickler. And I, I wrestled with that a little bit. But l- let me tell you, who's going to be a stickler when it comes to conversion? God. And you can go through your life ignoring all these signs that say it is Christ and Christ alone. Repent and believe in Jesus. You can ignore all those signs. You can ignore this preacher and you can say, Tom, if and when that really happens, I'm a fast talker. I'll talk God into doing it. Listen, friend, if I can't talk a lady at a lunch line into giving me a free meal, I'll guarantee you can't talk a righteous holy God into giving you forever. It will not work. We have a common conversion. It is Christ plus nothing. The sad thing is that there are people here, even this evening, some of you who are still trying, you think, well, if I could just get my devotional life right, if I could just get my church life right, if I could just pray the right words or be maybe, am I supposed to be on my knees or up standing up or does I have to follow a prayer or is that putting words in my mouth? Do I just have to pray my own prayer? What, what? Listen, friend, you need to come to Christ is what you need to do. You need to just repent of your sins and receive Christ by faith as your Savior. Employ your freedom in Christ. Enjoy your freedom in Christ. And let God give you a new, wholesome appreciation for all of His book, including the law, but put it in its proper perspective. Don't ever think that you can come to God any other way. But by the way, for those of you who have come to Christ, Don't start demanding that others behave like you to prove to you they love God as much as you do. God's dealing with them just like he's dealing with you. We have a common condition. We're all sinners and need justification. A common conclusion, we will not be justified by the works of our flesh. So we have a common conversion. If we're going to have eternal life, we must realize the sufficiency of Jesus. He paid the wages of sin, which is death. Our justification will only come when we receive Christ by faith as our Savior. That's the only way it will ever come. In just a few moments, we're going to stand together. In a few moments, our praise singers are going to help us as we sing a hymn of invitation this evening. And you know, what I'd like to do this evening is to ask you, when, when I finish praying in a few moments and when do we stand, I'd like to ask you to come to this altar if God has put it on your heart to make any one of several decisions. In the first place, you may be a judgmental person and you may be slipping into that and you may just need to come to the altar and say, Lord, help me to appreciate what you're doing in the lives of others. I don't want to lower my expectations of what a Christian life is, but I want to be given an ability to see where people are in their pilgrimage, all right? So you may just need to come to the altar and ask God to give you some discernment and some grace to discern in that area. It could be that you're not a member of this church and God has said quite simply to you, this is really where you belong. You know, you need to plant your life here. For instance, this is first early in the semester of our college and we've had many college students join. There are other college students here tonight. You want to make this your church home for this semester or for this year, I would encourage you to come under the watch care of this church and just plant your life here tonight. I mean, I wouldn't wait. I'd, You can go to bed tonight saying and even writing home to your folks or call them and say, I'm a part of a church, Mom and Dad. I really am growing in the Lord, part of a dynamic college ministry at First Southern. Or it could be that you're here as a family tonight. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Maybe you've visited once. Maybe you have visited many times. But God's just put it in your heart that you belong in this church. Why don't you do this? Why don't you just agree with Him and make that decision tonight? You don't have to go through any more church smorgasbords or buffet lines. Just come on and join First Southern Tonight as a family or as an individual, single person, couple, whatever, just come and join this church. It could be that you're one of those people who've just been trying so hard to be so good that God would let you in. And you're frustrated because one week you think you're headed that way and the next week you think, I'm not saved. And what you've realized tonight is that Christ will come into your heart. He will save you completely. He will give you eternal life. What you need to do is just give up and receive him by faith. Repent of your sin, even the sin of trying to get to heaven your way, and trust in Jesus as your Savior. He died to pay for your sins. He's risen from the grave. He's coming again. Why not make that decision this evening? And I would urge you to do so. If you've made a decision in one of our earlier services, joined this church, been baptized, and we've not introduced you, I'm going to ask you to come on the very first hands and be seated over here to my left and to your right so that we can let you meet your new church family tonight. So many people will be coming to this altar, and I urge you to join with them. And we're going to sing a very simple chorus. I have decided to follow the law. No, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I'm giving my life to Jesus, all right? And so that's what we're going to be singing in just a few moments. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Father in heaven, my prayer is that right now you'll bring to this altar each person, every person who would agree with you on your plan for their life, whether it be part of this church uh, for the rest of their life, for part of their life while they're here at school, or whether it be to be a part of this church to minister and to receive ministry, or whether it be to come to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, Master of their lives. Father, I pray you'd bring to this altar even people who would kneel and pray and say, Lord, help me to place only those clear criteria which you have placed before us in the Scripture as the evidences of salvation. Father, give me an ability to discern what you're doing in the lives of others who are walking along a pathway just as I did, and I am. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The counselors are here. Won't you come right now quickly as we sing this stanza? I've decided... To follow Jesus. Won't you come? God bless you.